and welcome to the Change Makers LA podcast. My name is Tanua Thrash Intook, and I am the Executive Director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation Los Angeles office. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a couple of innovative housing solutions, and we've got a couple of special guests with us today. First, I'd like to introduce William Pickle, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Brilliant Corners, a local affordable housing developer, developing supportive housing solutions through new construction, acquisition, rehab, and preservation. William is a graduate, shout out, of the LISC Advanced Housing Development Training Institute. Whoop, whoop, good to know, Bill, and realized you were a graduate of our program. Welcome, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So for our listeners out there, uh, Bill is actually remote for today, so we're glad to have him here on our podcast for today. Next, we've got Tom DeSimone, who's also with us. He is the president and CEO of Genesis LA. Genesis LA is a community development financial institution, a CDFI. And as a CDFI, they make direct loans and investments to community and economic development projects through their Genesis Community Investment Fund. We're happy to have you here, Tom. I'm glad to be here. So much like LISC, Genesis is also at LISC as a CDFI as well. And uh, glad to be able to talk about some of the things that you all are doing in the market um, to really make sure we've got housing that Californians need. So for today, we're talking about the fact that we certainly know that we've got to do something about homelessness, and housing developers we know are working as fast as they can to ensure um, that that housing gets built. But we know it's expensive, and it takes a long time to build. In Los Angeles, one unit could cost anywhere from around half a million dollars or more. It can take years to build. And nonprofit developers and affordable housing developers must put together several different sources of financing before a project is even feasible. So the question is, is there a way to do this quicker and less expensive to meet the immediate demand and need for affordable housing? So our two guests here today, I'm going to be asking you a series of questions about some programs that you all have initiated to answer that question. So, Tom, let's talk about Genesis LA and what you're doing and the kind of capital that you're able to provide to partners and developers so that they can purchase property quickly and explain how this has helped to speed up the development process for folks. Yeah, as a CDFI like LISC, we've realized that there's a lot of innovative ideas out there, but it's difficult for them to advance because no one knows how to finance it. These are new ideas. There's not existing products for it. So one of the things that we're working on now with a number of partners is a program that we call Rethink Housing, and it's designed to provide equity dollars up front so that we, along with them, can acquire property very quickly. And Genesis LA actually does that with our own balance sheet dollars. And then we transfer the property to our development partner. So we're working with a group called Restore Neighborhoods LA right now and an architecture firm, Layer Architects, to do this. And we will then follow that with a single source of pre-development construction and permanent financing. So when you compare that to what you were alluding to earlier, you know, multiple sources of financing from public and private agencies that traditional affordable housing developers have to assemble, we're providing that in one single product and we're helping them have the liquidity they need to buy property quickly. And so those are some strategies that we're working on right now uh, in conjunction with some of the Triple H dollars here in the city of LA to get more homeless housing online. Well, certainly as a member of the Triple H uh, Citizens Oversight Commission, we've been 
uh, pushing for innovation just like this and excited to know that you've been able to move forward with that. So essentially, Tom, in addition to the equity that you're able to provide, is the developer also using traditional debt financing uh, in, in first position to be able to take down the property and get it ready for redevelopment? We are doing that as well with with some other borrowers, but on this particular program, we've actually been providing the equity up front so that you can close quickly, and then we'll turn back around and hand the property over to our partner with a loan on it that we hold ourselves. Oh, wow. That is innovative. So right away, you've got, if if a property owner or the developer in this case has got a $2 million property, you're able to advance that equity line in order to quickly purchase and close on that property using the security of the property itself. And then you're able to turn that back around in terms of um, a different kind of financing source with harder debt to support the long-term development of that project. Exactly. So you've been focused on infield development. Can you explain what that what it, what that is as far as focusing on small lot infield development? Yeah, we've really seen an opportunity to uh, pursue properties that are s- about the size of a single family lot. So these are about five to 7,000 square feet in size. Uh, and you compare that to, you know, high teens, low 20,000 square foot size lots for traditional multifamily buildings. And we really think that this is a, a missed opportunity historically. I think people forget that Los Angeles has historically done a pretty good job of building naturally affordable housing. And we did this on lots that were about this size. If you drive around town, you see bungalow courts and garden style apartments that are really beloved housing typologies throughout the city. And they were built pre-war on these single family size lots. But zoning reforms or zoning changes and parking came into effect and really made it illegal to do that. But this was multifamily housing built on single family lots and it made it much more affordable, little cottages and things like that. And today, with a lot of the reforms coming out of the state as well as the city on zoning and uh, reduction or elimination of parking, we're able to actually go back and implement some of the design typologies and construction methods and things like that that make these small lots viable again. And so I think what it's doing is it's really expanding the field of potential development sites uh, so that there's a lot more land we can build on in the city. So you are looking at sort of the traditional single-family home sort of size lot, uh, acquiring those quickly. Where are you looking at uh, acquiring them right now? Where where in the city has been a good place for you to pick up these kinds of properties? Yeah, so far, a lot of the commercial corridors, you know, they're, a lot of them are built out and they have an empty lot or a, a single-family home that's sort of a remnant from a past era. And so those have been really uh, ripe for this opportunity because they have higher zoning. You know, we're not doing this in single-family neighborhoods that are zoned single family. But if you go into R3 or R4 or commercial zoned um, locations, there's a lot of um, small properties in between. And they're built up on either side often. So, you know, without acquiring the adjacent parcels, you can't really do these 50, 60, 70 unit tax credit type projects. So here is an idea that can sort of fit nicely into these gap tooth corridors that we have throughout the town of the city. Which is really great because a lot of people aren't necessarily ready for very high density development. It doesn't work everywhere. It doesn't make sense everywhere. But this sounds like a way to fit within the character of the neighborhood already. Essentially, how many units are you aiming for, you know, over the next couple of years in terms of bringing online as you uh, do the infill development with these small lots? Yeah, we, we have a pipeline of 
10 or 12 projects right now, and it's over 150 units. And really, it's it's capital that has sort of been the constraint for us. We think there's a lot of opportunities out there, and it's capital from both sides, obviously. Um, the, the Triple H dollars have been largely awarded at this point, so um, we're waiting to see what comes next from that. But also on the operating side, all of these projects for homeless housing particularly need some form of rental subsidy or operating subsidy. Uh, and you know, the city and the county have done a great job of deploying that, but we really need more uh, to be able to continue to, to move this forward. And it's that, that rental subsidy, I have to say, is what really unlocks the ability for private capital like CDFIs to come in because you can you can really underwrite financing to a to a clear cash flow stream that comes from that. Yeah, for those listeners out there for CDFIs and there's a source that we know we can count on that's right. uh, being there to be able to pay. How do we get our mortgage paid? That's each right. Month? <laughs> that's right. Very very important. So, how many units do you think on average each project is uh, developing right now? Yeah, ours have ranged. We actually did a duplex in Compton, which it was just a you could only do two units on that lot and uh, it's shared housing that houses 10 youth. Um, to about 25 to 30 unit projects that we're doing, a few uh, in South LA on Figueroa Street. This is very exciting and very promising. Um, part of why we also want to talk about this is so that we can figure out how do we bring more capital so that that constraint is not something that you have. Let's move over and over to Brilliant Corners. And I want to talk with you, Bill, about your program and specifically the work that you're doing to uh, convert unutilized properties for housing. Uh, what kinds of properties have you done this for and um, how are they being utilized? So that's a fantastic question, and there's a lot of common ground and common themes with uh, some of the things you were discussing with Tom. Brilliant Corners was founded back in the mid-2000s with an initial mission to create housing opportunities, uh, affordable and supportive housing opportunities in the community for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And we became, over the past decade, uh, the largest housing partner uh, in California's developmental services system. And our initial focus was to create community-based housing options for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who had been institutionalized in very large state hospital settings called developmental centers. So in the past 10 years, we've developed over 200 highly specialized, customized sites. The vast majority of them were actually single-family homes that we acquired and converted um, for a range of special needs. And that enabled us to house over 1,000 people. as we then looked at the Triple H Permanent Supportive Housing Innovation Opportunity, our team came together and saw the opportunity um, to build on our core competencies and what we had learned working with the existing built environment. And we shifted over to an adaptive reuse model. So specifically, we're really looking at sites like public storage, churches, warehouses, and office buildings that really have a lot of similarity with the types of infill locations that Tom was describing. And these are opportunity sites that the tax credit system really isn't built to take advantage of. Um, so we think that the, uh, the built environment has a lot of opportunity uh, to develop uh, somewhat smaller scale uh, service enriched properties that are deeply affordable um, and that can help LA address the crisis of homelessness. 
Well, that's, I mean, when you think about it and you drive down the street in Los Angeles and you see uh, churches and warehouses and other buildings that you that are being used or not used, but used to be used for something else. And the first thing you think is that there's nowhere to put the housing. But what you're saying is that we can adapt uh, what those uses were before um, and transform them into housing specifically for the, for the population that you're looking to serve, some of the most vulnerable uh, people in our society who have developed mental disabilities. What do you think is the cost savings by uh, doing this by, I mean, just thinking about it right now, clearly there are some environmental, um, you know, savings and, and, uh, you know, reusing a building always hopefully makes a difference in terms of the kind of uh, output that we're doing. But part of what we're talking about here is Tom has been able to show us how do we um, move a project faster. Um, Your model, does it help bring down the cost of developing housing units? Well, so I think our team is going to um, explore a number of different models. What we're currently working on is um, um, a couple of sites, the office buildings and public storage sites. And uh, we think that we can bring down the development timeline from your typical, you know, five years or more to three years or less. We also are currently estimating that as opposed to the average per unit cost that you rightly named as 500,000 per unit or higher, you know, we're currently estimating about $375,000, $380,000 per unit. So that could be a potential cost reduction of 30 to 40% per unit. Um, and those are for sort of mid-sized sites that might yield somewhere between 20 and 30 units per site. We also are very interested in those even smaller sites uh, that Tom is describing that are essentially the size of single-family lots, but they might lend themselves to small uh, bungalow courts and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, the, what you're talking about um, allows uh, the developer to be able to move faster, but really a reduced cost as well uh, associated with developing a unit. And it sounds like these are not some of the larger projects that we've seen before financed by what we've been referring to as the low-income housing tax credit, but using other sources like the HUD Section 8 voucher or the flexible housing subsidy pool funds in order to provide the long-term services. So, gentlemen, I'm to close this out, I just want to uh, check in with you about sort of what has been the area that still perplexes you about trying to move these different strategies forward uh, even faster and bring them to market in a, a larger scalable way. Tom, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Yeah, a couple things come to mind. Uh, first, as I alluded to earlier, the rental subsidy, um, LA has created a, a brilliant program really there. And Brilliant Corners, by, by way, uh, <laughs> is the uh, administrator of that. And Bill's done a great job. And um, it's been such a helpful tool to really loosen up new players into the space, new different types of development. Um, and I think really creating more certainty around that for the ongoing future is going to be essential to keep the momentum we've been building really going. A second thing, I think, is around some of the regulatory environment. You know, we talk a lot about streamlining and trying to make things easier on the public sector. There's still a lot of work to do there. Um, When you're doing things innovatively in the housing space and you're not going to tax credits, all of the public contracts, all of the procurement process is built around tax credits. And a lot of those um, provisions don't work or don't apply to what we're trying to do. Uh, And it's just not an easy process to 
you know, strip that type of in, uh, language out of these documents and, and get the public sector to go along with a new way of doing it. So I think if we really want to see innovation take off and become normalized, we really have to work on that as I'm, well. I'm totally with you on that. I've seen that and have worked myself to advocate to try and loosen up and shake up some of the traditional ways that we've thought about doing development using only the LIHTC model. Yeah. And if we're going to use other kinds of financing models, you're right, we've got to figure out other ways of quantifying, qualifying, and figuring out, you know, who is the right developer with the right skills to get something done. Bill, what's on your mind? What has, um, you know, perplexed you and and, uh, something that you'd like to, uh, you know, spend a little time wrestling with to try and figure out how to overcome so we can bring more of these underutilized properties and neighborhoods to good use around housing? Well, um, a lot of a lot of common ground there uh, again with Tom. And when you think about a program like the Flexible Housing Subsidy Pool, it helped us demonstrate that there were actually units that we could lease and then uh, or secure and then um, lease to people experiencing homelessness or transitioning out of a public system back into the community and break down the myth that there's just no units out there. Uh, By the same token, uh, I would agree wholeheartedly with Tom that when we create, we create sort of a market and opportunity by being able to provide a standardized yet flexible package of rent subsidies or site-based operating subsidies and supportive services and case management that then uh, creative developers, both for-profit and non-profit, uh, can utilize to uh, develop uh, projects. And so the challenge that we have is just to get away from what one of our funding partners calls a kind of an addiction of the affordable housing sector to one-time money. We need ongoing um, funding for rent subsidies and supportive services at a scale commensurate to the need, and then we can all go out there and do that work. And I would say what's most exciting to me is that both some traditional affordable housing, um, uh, uh, you know, folks that have been part of the affordable housing system for many years, as well as some new players, are really engaging and doing high-quality pro- projects um, that are um, that do reflect housing-first values, trauma-informed care, um, cognizance of racial equity, and a social justice framework. So when we talk about regulatory streamlining, of course, we're not talking about uh, developing projects that we can't all be proud of and that don't provide really high-quality, affordable, and supportive settings for the most vulnerable people in Los Angeles and other communities in California. Well said. Well said, Bill. I couldn't have said it better, and I'm so glad you got a chance to have the final word on this. Uh, to both of you, uh, to Bill and to Tom, thank you so much uh, for being here this week. Um, and thank you all out there for joining us on Changemakers LA podcast. We really appreciate our guests today and their innovative ideas on how do we produce housing quicker and less expensive to meet the current demands for affordable housing. We appreciate all of you who continue to to log in and listen to our podcast. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please do so. You can reach us at www.lisc.org backslash Los Angeles. This episode was made possible by supporters like MUFG Union Bank. If you'd like to learn more about how we provide capital support for innovative housing at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.lisc.org backslash Los Angeles and follow us on Twitter at L-I-S-C LISC underscore LA. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, 
and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles. Los Angeles.